I request Sri Nitinji to give the presentation. Rupio Namaha. Uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Indic Academy, especially Padmavati ji for organizing the event and Sri Harikaran Vadlamaji for facilitating the book launch. I would also like to thank uh, Pradyumna ji and uh, my dear friend Sai Swarupa for uh, unveiling the book for agreeing to be present in the event. Uh, so let me begin my presentation uh, with a few words regarding the uh, the journey of my book and uh, as uh, Pradyamna ji said, to shed light on the subtext of the book, the Shabrimala Confusion. Shabrimala Confusion, the, uh, the subtext, the story behind this, it is both an inspiration as well as a statement of the fact. My book started, the journey of the book started with the Shabrimala issue back in 2015, long before it became so big an issue, even then it, when the, it went to the court and there was a huge media outcry that uh, there is a discrimination against women in Shabrimala. So then I started researching on, that was the first time, you know, I seriously, you know, started thinking who is Ayapa? what is Shabrimala, what is the temple. So I researched on this issue, I wrote on this issue, I wrote a few articles on uh, Shabrimala, uh, few articles on why, what is the issue at Shabrimala, it is a, how it is a religious issue and not a women's rights issue. But a question then that was there everywhere was, Okay, fine, Shabrimala may be a religious issue, but what about menstruation? The media narrative was that Hinduism degrades women, Indian culture treats women badly by, uh, by looking down upon menstruation. That, that, that is the mainstream narrative and that, that was the question I asked, how true is this narrative? Is this, is this narrative, there is any truth in it or it is completely created propaganda? So with this, uh, the journey of this book started. I started writing, I started with a series of articles in India Facts in 2016 and then I expanded them into a book and it took me two years and now it is finally out in 2000. So, so that is why the Shabrimala confusion is there. The confusion, the funny thing is, the entire issue of Shabrimala has nothing to do with menstruation. But it has been made, the narrative has been made into such that it has something to do with menstruation. But the fact is, it has nothing to do with menstruation. So by creating this false equivalence, this false narrative that the issue of Shabrimala has something to do with menstruation and in turn the Hinduism treats menstruating women in a degrading way, the entire uh, framework or a propaganda has been built that Hinduism is misogynist and it degrades women. So I am, I am in today's presentation, I will be speaking about this, that how it is not true and what is the exact uh, narrative on menstruation? 
let us try to uh, understand the Hindu views of menstruation. What does our tradition says? What is our practices says? What does our shastras say on menstruation? So, as I said, uh, just summarized here what I just said, that mainstream narrative on Hindu treatment of menstruation is that, that Hinduism treats menstruation as an impure process and these views are rooted in superstition and that this results in degrading of women. Two best examples, how many of you are aware that recently the, the a documentary made by an Indian on, and it is available on Netflix titled period and end of sentence, it got an Oscars award just two, three days back, it got Oscars award and uh, you know in India, we still have this colonial hangover, whatever, wherever we get a uh, from the West uh, any award, anything that must be the best thing. But the fact is uh, like a few decades ago during the freedom struggle, there was Catherine Mayo who wrote a book on India which Mahatma Gandhi described as. Uh, gutter inspectors report and this uh, uh, period end and sentence is just a continuation of that propaganda. You watch it, it has nothing to do with, it, it does not address any of the issue related to menstruation, it does not address the health issues connected with the menstruation, the uh, uh, various uh, excessive bleeding or uh, irregular menstruation, all those things it does not address. The own, it is basically a story of how a low cost uh, sanitary pads are manufactured, how they made a business, some, some product, I think the name is Fly, they have business. That itself is a scam. I am given to told by many lot of uh, women on the ground who are working, how the Muruganathan, you know, the pad man on whom the movie is made, he has, uh, you know, he is funded by foreign uh, commercial interests. To, to create a particular narrative about India. In, the, in that uh, documentary specifically, he speaks about data about how the only 10, less than 10 percent of women use pads in India and what is the source of the data? There is no statistic, there is no basis, it is just he is making it out. But the more deeper problem with this documentary which has won Oscars is that it, its sole agenda appears to be to portray India in a poor light, to portray Indian women as ignorant and superstitious. It has particular scenes where they ask this rural women to describe what menstruation is. In Hindi mein they say, wo gandagi nikalta hai or something like that and then the, the, the whole thing is portrayed as if Oh, she is so ignorant, she does not know a simple thing about biology. So, th this, this, the, but the fact is if they were little bit genuine, they would have known that what she is saying is actually true. The Ayurvedic text says that menstruation is a purifying process which removes all the toxins of the body, the toxins are called as ama. So, the, the rural women who, who, who would not have learned actually any, gone through any Sushruta Samhita, but she has received this knowledge by her mother in her tradition and she is actually correct. 
she is not wrong. So, in the later slides, I will show how problematic this modernity and modern education is. But let us uh, not uh, jump ahead. The second example I have mentioned here is another uh, a Bollywood documentary, which is uh, freely available on YouTube if you type on sex ki aralat. So, it is it's a, it's a interesting documentary, they have a court scene, it is it's just a fictitious court scene. The husband is the accused, the wife is the victim, she is saying that she is being oppressed by her husband three days every month because of her monthly periods. Her allegation is that because her husband thinks menstruation is impure, she uh, he makes her to sit separately and he oppresses her. I mean the whole narrative, the whole narrative around menstruation is built upon showing or positing that Indian culture, specifically Hindu culture, treats menstruation as impure, and this is degrading to women. This is a patriarchal and misogynistic. Do they even question the definition of impurity before using the term so loosely? Unfortunately, no, they do not. So the, so, the question that arises is how true is the representation of Hindu views of menstruation? What is the correct meaning, what is the correct understanding of menstruation or how Hinduism treats menstruation? So, let us begin with a story from the Vedas. My friend Sai Swarupa spoke about Rig Veda and the stories from there. So, I will be picking up a story from Yajurveda Taitiriya Samhita. Please understand this is not a historical event. Do not ask me at what date this historical event happened or how this happened, how this historical event is wrong. This is not a historical event. It is a story. It is a uh, itihasa, you can say. Itihasa is not a history in the sense of we understand it. It is a story of our devatas. So, the story is Vishwarupa, the son of Twastar, they are the Vedic deities. So, this Vishwarupa was a domestic priest of the gods, but he was also related to the Asuras. He promised the share to the gods openly, you know, he was a priest means he did the yajyas. So, in the yajyas, he openly promised the shares to the devatas, whereas he promised the shares secretly to the asuras. And we all know that what is promised secretly is the real promise, it is delivered. What is promised openly is mostly empty promises. So, the Indra, the chief devata became very angry. He said, this Vishwarupa is diverting what belongs to me to the Asuras, diverting my sovereignty to the Asuras. So, he took his Vajra and cut off the head of Vishwarupa, thereby committing Brahmahatya, the slaying of a Brahmana, because Vishwarupa was a priest was a Brahmana. So, this is called Brahmahatya and Brahmahatya is considered the one of the heinous, 
one of the greatest gravest crimes in indian tradition in hindu tradition so wherever indra went everybody used to call him a slayer of a brahmana performer of a brahmahatya so the guilt or the adharma or the papa associated with that brahmatya was so huge that indra tried to do so many things but he could not become free of it so then he came to prithvi the mother earth she is so compassionate we all know we are everyday abusing the mother earth we dig we mine we do everything nonsense she still bears with us so indra knew this he is very intelligent guy he knows okay let me go to uh, mother earth she will take my one third guilt so she he goes to her says please relieve me of this burden of brahmatya please just take one third papam from this and in turn i will give you a boon so mother earth says okay i will take it and this guilt manifested as a natural fissure that appears on the earth and the boon he she asked from indra is that see people harm me by digging so let me not be harmed by digging so he said okay from now on let people dig but it will not harm you with passing time it will be filled on its own similarly then he went to the trees and they also agreed to take one third papam one third of the papam from the indra and in turn they also asked the boon they asked the boon that you know the pruning harms us so let us not be harmed by it so he said okay from now on pruning will help you to grow more and we see it you prune the leaves trees and plants it grows more and in turn the guilt that they took manifested as a sap you know the sap the liquid that is present in the trees and finally he came to women he said see i have only one third of the guilt left now please take it and relieve me of the burden permanently and they were compassionate just like the trees and the mother earth they said okay we will take it in turn they asked the boon that they obtain offsprings after the menses and that they can enjoy sexual intimacy until the birth and the boon uh, you know was granted but the guilt that they took upon themselves manifested as the stained garment so the boon was that they enjoy sexual activity until the birth of the baby and that they obtain they be able to conceive the baby after the menses but the guilt manifested as the stained garments or the monthly periods so then the yajurveda says after narrating this story that therefore one should not converse with a woman with a stained garments one should not sit with her not nor eat her food for she emits the color of guilt one should not have intercourse with a menstruating woman other things to avoid for menstruating women include bathing makeup anointing herself combing brushing cutting nails spinning weaving etc so this is an interesting story and as i said this is not a historical event so do not think about in a chronological order did they did women did not menstruate before this story happened see that story that that question is meaningless 
because the purpose of the story, the purpose of the account is not to give a historical incident. The purpose is, it's a it, it is providing as a hermeneutic principles to interpret, to understand menstruation. It is providing us a framework of how we should approach the topic of menstruation. What is the very first thing it says? It compares the manifestation, the bleeding or the monthly periods in a woman with the sap of the uh, tree or the fissure in the earth. What does it tell? That it is a natural phenomenon. This story does not go against the biology. The very source or the very central part of the story is that menstruation is a biological phenomenon, it is a natural phenomenon, it is nothing to be afraid of, it is nothing to be ashamed about, it is something very natural which is very integral, intrinsic to a woman, to womanhood, to what makes a woman. I do not bleed, a woman bleeds, so that is a difference, there is no equality here, but I will not go to that area. The second thing that the story says that there is one third of Brahmatya. So, what is this Brahmatya? Why, do, why is it women taking it upon them? What does it convey? Again, this is connected the biological cycle. So, what is basically the biological cycle? What is this menstrual cycle? What does it happen? That the women's body prepares to receive, to prepares to conceive, prepares the body to conceive, the egg is formed. And when the conception do not happen, that egg needs to be thrown out. There is a egg which has the capacity to bring a child forth, to bring a jiva, to give birth to a jiva, give, to give a physical body to a jiva which is waiting, right? But when the conception does not happen, a jiva which is waiting is denied this opportunity. In the case of abortion, the denial is deliberate, the denial is more greater papam because an abortion happens after the jiva has entered the mother and it is growing in a different stage of growth and it is deliberately stopped. So then this abortion is usually equated, the magnitude of adharma that is associated with abortion is equated to brahmatya, one brahmatya. That is, it is so great that it is equivalent to killing of a brahmana, equivalent to murder. But in this case, it is just one third. Why? Because the process is, does not, people do not have control over it, women do not have control over it, right? It happens, it is a natural process, but still the papan exists. So, what is the process of getting rid of this papam? The menstruation itself is the process. So, the menstruation is understood not as something associated with papam as such, though there is an element of it, but it is also understood as something which removes that papam. So, while ashaucha is understood, the impurity, see impurity is an English term, the Sanskrit term is ashaucha. I will explain the ashaucha part later, but the the central aspect of from this story is ashaucha is caused by the non-fertilization of egg which, which the story refers as color of guilt. 
but menstruation itself is a shaucha process it's a purifying process it removes the guilt it makes the women free from that guilt see the beauty of our understanding it is not saying that menstruation is something sinful it is saying menstruation is purifying it removes you from a kind of papam which is inherent in the biological process further the story shows that menstruation is also an austerity that assists the purification process and since it makes childbirth possible we saw the boon part that women got the boon that they will be able to have childbirth by give birth to child after menses so because it menstruation makes that thing possible menstruation is a dharmic process that needs to be celebrated because giving birth to bringing a jiva into this physical realm is a very noble activity is a very punya activity you gain lot of punya from that so that is why it needs to be celebrated so the story in a very natural in a very small you know interesting way gives five principles five frameworks for understanding menstruation that of ashaucha austerity rest self purification and celebration and we will see each of them now in little bit depth to have a more more appreciate the nuances involved in it because in the mainstream tv narrative media you don't get to read all those things because the, they have a motivated agenda second unfortunately even our elders are completely ignorant of this as pradyumna ji was telling that previously you know for long time daughters have been practicing things because the mothers have told them the grandmothers have told them it is a good way of transmission in a family from daughter mother to daughter father to son it is a very good way of transmission of knowledge but the problem arises is when you transmit the practice without explaining the knowledge associated with the practice otherwise then the there is a whole scope for this practice becoming a mechanical devoid of knowledge and open to lot of abuse and uh, misuse and misunderstanding so and then our all our practices have encoded knowledge within them but unless we explicitly pass it on the knowledge becomes remains encoded it does not become manifest leading to various abuse of the practice misunderstanding so on and so forth so let us take ashaucha ashaucha is again as i said a sanskrit term what you know in english we call impurity 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 so the first thing that comes to our mind when we think about impurity is it is a negative term he is impure she is impure no 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 so why are you degrading sir him why so because that is how a current narrative is done because the meaning given to impurity in our present 
narrative is a state of sin, a state of moral depravity, a state of moral degradation. And all of this are rightfully understood as negative. Yes. But does our understanding of ashaucha with respect to menstruation implies moral depravity? A clear-cut answer is no. Why so? I'll explain it. One of the names for menstruation in Sanskrit is Rajasrava. Rajasrava means flow of Rajas. What is this Rajas? Raja means bledge. Raja also means Rajoguna. Raja also means Rajasik Shakti. Rajasik Urja. Raja, single term, has three different meanings at three different layers. And let us understand clearly what is the term Ashaucha mean. The definition of the Ashaucha in our Dharma Shastra is very clear. It pertains to ritual impurity and the very definition is incompetency, not moral deprivation, but incompetency. Incompetency for what? For performing certain actions. In this case, for performing Vaidika Agamika Karmas. So, as I said, what does this ritual impurity means? Again, I will have to step back and a little bit explain. In today's biology that we read in our high schools and all, we are taught that we are this physical body. Yes, we are this physical body. We are made of bones and muscles and blood and all those things true. But the problem with our education is we are told that this is what we are. This is just the we are. There is nothing more than that. The, in fact, the modern science goes, at least particular school of modern science goes to extend and says, even the thinking mind is just a product of brain. Just a chemical uh, reaction in the brain causes the, our thinking mind. So this is nothing new. This is all our Charvaka argument, <laughs> which is being rehashed and uh, given back to us. But that is not how the Hindu tradition understands. The Vedanta, for example, gives a five-fold layers of personality, of individuality. When I say I, Aham, Nanu, it not just refers to my physical body, but also my Pranamaya Kosha, the vital sheath, my Manomaya Kosha or the, my mind, the Vijnanamaya Kosha, the higher intellect and as well as the Anandamaya Kosha, the layer of bliss. We will not go into the last two because that is not relevant for our discussion. But the three layers which is very relevant for our day-to-day -day activities is the Annamaya Kosha which is the physical, the physical body. Pranamaya Kosha is the vital body. It is made up of five pranas that sustains life. See, we say that a person is alive when he is breathing oxygen, person is dead when he does not breathe oxygen. But the thing is when a person dies, even then his body is filled with all kind of air. So, it is not just about the oxygen thing, there must be something else and we call it as prana, life force and there are five kinds of life force in the body, prana, apana, vyana, udana, samana, they, they do different activities like um, inhalation, prana and inhalation, all those things. The apana is downward moving uh, wind which causes excretion, even the 
the blood, the bleeding in, during menstruating women is caused by the apanavayu, the heightened condition of apanavayu, because apana is the one which removes the things from the body. So this is called as pranamaya kosha. The manomaya kosha is the mind. So what does impurity or ashaucha mean at the level of annamaya, pranamaya, manomaya kosha? At the physical level, during uh, menses, there is a flow of blood. This flow of blood is called as ashaucha. If somebody has an injury and there is a flow of blood, even that person is called a, uh, is said to be in a state of ashaucha for all practical purposes, for all purposes of rituals. Does it mean that I am saying that injured person is somehow inferior to me? That makes no sense. If does, it does not make sense in the case of injured person, why should it make sense in the case of menstruating women? Moreover, Ayurveda considers menstruation as a state of injury because the uterine lining and all is removed from the body and is removed out of the body and that needs to be healed. So, at the physical level, this ashaucha is merely a reference to the fact that there is a movement of blood from the body towards outside and at the pranamaya kosha level, there is a movement of rajasic energy. Remember the term rajasrava, flow of rajas. The apanavayu, the, the heightened apanavayu, it is moving out, the rajasic energy is moving out. And at the mental level, manomaya kosha, the mind, the internal passions, the mind is in a very huge fluctuation. Women here can attest to this, that during their periods, lot of them experience mood swings. Sometimes they are angry, sometimes they are irritated, sometimes they just do not feel right. There may be exceptions, I am not saying everybody has the same thing. But that is the fact, that is how the, the whole process works. So this is called as ritual impurity in the manomaya kosha. So let us understand what is shaucha to get a perspective or a context of what is ashaucha. Shaucha means purity, but what is this purity? Shaucha is purity in the sense that it imparts competency to perform actions. I have a whole presentation a one hour presentation on what this ashaucha and ashaucha means. But the gist is, shaucha is purity in the sense that it presents, uh, imparts competency. At the physical level, this shaucha translates into hygiene, no excretions. That is why you say you go to urination or something, this is also considered as impure because it is unhygienic. In the case of menstruation, there is a flow of blood, that is why it is unhygienic. Then, shaucha at uh, level of prana, balance of the prana is shaucha. There are five pranas as I said, the balance of them is shaucha and imbalance of them, imbalance in the sense one of the pranas is in a heightened state. In the case of menstruation, the apana is in a heightened state, there is a heightened state of rajas and hence it is ashaucha. In the case of manomaya kosha, the calmness of the mind mind should be calm, free from internal passions, free from imbalance or uh, mood swings to the best possible 
degree. So that is shaucha, whereas mood swings in internal passions, irritation, all these are ashaucha. Where is the question of moral degradation here? So ashaucha imparts competency, ashaucha imparts incompetency. So what does it translate in practically as far as menstruation is concerned? You see the table. Certain actions become unsuitable and people become unsuitable for certain other actions. For example, certain actions become unsuitable. We said do not do cooking. Why? Because the menstruating women should not, is not supposed to cook food. Because cooking involves a direct interaction with the food, a direct transmission of energy. Because you are in a heightened state of rajas, you cooking food implies that you are transmitting your rajasic energy to the food and to the consumer of that food. So that certain action becomes prohibited for you. You become unsuitable for certain actions like you should not go into a temple. So I will come to the details of it, why it happens, what are the purpose behind it. But these are the certain criteria. So here, ashaucha at the end of the day simply means that it is related to your competency or incompetency to perform certain actions and your own condition of the body, your own condition of the body at the physical, pranic and mental levels and it has no, it has zero moral connotations. And both men and women enter ashaucha at different times. For example, there is a uh, death of a relative, very close relative, then men as well as women enter ashaucha. Are we saying that the, you know, uh, the people who just had a huge loss in, in terms of losing a uh, parent or some relative are some kind of inferior people? No. It is a merely a statement of their uh, incompetency to perform certain Vaidika actions, certain Agamika actions and as well as a statement of the condition of their body, the energy condition, there are lot of details in this. And as I said, all flow of blood whether due to menstruation or due to injury, it is considered as ashaucha. So in short, a menstruating woman is in a heightened condition of rajas and hence ineligible for performing certain Vaidika Agamika actions which is termed as ashaucha. So restrictions against cooking food, physical touch, sexual intimacy are due to these, this ashaucha consideration because they involve a transmission of rajasic energy. Ashaucha makes one ineligible for spiritual activity. Interesting, so as I said, so the question now we should ask is, if ashaucha is merely a reference to the heightened condition of rajas in a menstruating woman and her ineligibility to perform certain actions, that is if ashaucha is merely understood as a reference to ineligibility and the fact that she is in a heightened condition of rajas and has no connotations of morality, so how come? From where does this narrative coming that Hinduism degrades women by calling menstruation as impure? How come this 
narrative of equating impurity, the term impurity with moral degradation, the state of sin and all those things. The answer is in my book in a very elaborated manner, but in a short manner, in a very single line if I have to answer here, the answer is Abrahamic theology, particularly Christian theology. And all Abrahamic faiths, especially Christianity, they believe this story of, you know, I don't know how many of you are familiar, the story of the fall of Adam and Eve, the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve, and they were happy together in the Garden of Eden. The God has commanded them to not eat the forbidden apple, but Eve, uh, goaded by a serpent, ate that apple, made Adam eat that apple. And they both were removed from the garden of, uh, garden of Eden and they were made to fall to human existence. So in short, they call this the original sin, the first sin, the original sin of the first original man and woman, especially the woman because she was the one who first gave into the temptation. So the story goes in their Old Testament and all. The God punished the woman by saying that because of your sin, you will have menstruation. You will start bleeding each month. So they believe that every month, the women around us who are the progenitors of that original woman, they partake the sin of that original woman. They partake in that original sin. So during the monthly menstruation, they enter a state of sinfulness. Can you make the connect, can you connect the dots now? It is a Christian theology which says menstruation is impure and it is impure because women enter a state of sinfulness during their menstruation. This is the Christian theology and this theology, mind you, this is not an innocent theological construct. These constructs have real life implications as I quote in my book. This understanding of menstruation resulted in deaths of at least 8 to 10 million women in medieval Europe who were accused of witchcraft. The witchcraft, menstruation, they are all closely connected. All women because they bleed during monthly menses were seen as practicing witchcraft and sorcery and they were put to death. So this was a real practical uh, uh, consequences. This is not a you know, story, not a formulation. They had real life effects. So it is this. When the West developed secularism, they started critiquing the church and Christian theology, they took upon this definition of impurity. That impurity means the state of sinfulness. And they applied this definition into all cultures, especially the non-Christian, non-West, non-white cultures. And uh, unfortunately, India being a colonial country, we are being not, still not in the huge grasp of colonialism. Our scholars, our feminists, our activists, we have simply copy and pasted the Western discourse on menstruation into an Indian context. Instead of critiquing the Christianity, here we are critiquing Hinduism. 
because we thought oh impurity ashavacham means impurity so it must also mean degradation of women but the fact is there is no correspondence there is no correlation between a christian understanding or a abrahamic understanding of impurity or menstruation and a hindu understanding of menstruation hindu understanding of menstruation has a lot of parallels with the greek civilization with roman civilization some parallels with even egypt and mesopotamians because all this civilization all this polytheistic civilizations they all were an impurity or imp and uh, purity impurity based civilizations not a virtue sin based civilizations their uh, their understanding was rooted on the concepts of miasma miasma is ashaucha what we call ashaucha greeks call miasma they were not rooted in the concept of sin it is the monotheists especially the christian christian theology which gives enormous stress on virtue and sin so we have imported a western narrative of the language of impurity and superimposed upon a hindu terminology of ashaucha and have been building a huge narrative blogs newspaper articles academic papers videos documentaries perpetrating this propaganda this false information so coming to the second part now after ashaucha the second hermeneutic principle or framework given in the vedic story is the menstruation as a purification process so the question is what does menstruation purify so please note that all the points that i am making here i am not making it out of the hat there are references in our dharma shastra traditions in our various texts various smritis and itihasas texts and you can find all the references in the book so this imperative so what does menstruation purify so that is the second question as you can see in the chart for easy understanding i have made it purifies impurity at the physical level at the pranic level and also with respect to adharmic action at the physical level i already noted that the very menstruation process the biological process is about removal of blood vaginal secretions endometrial tissues the unfertilized egg and so on so forth which are no longer needed in the body so it purifies the body by removing these things secondly the ayurvedic texts clearly mention that menstrual during the bleeding removes all the toxins from the body the toxins are called as ama not just that, that related to you know uterine lining and all but the other toxins from the body so ayurveda greatly stresses that women should take rest they should respect their biological process they should respect their purifying process and allow their bodies rest so that this purifying this removal of toxins happens without any disturbance then there is the removal of pranic impurity what does pranic impurity that is as i said menstruation is heightened condition of rajas 
but at the end of three days, the panchapranas come back to a balance level because the excess rajasic energy has been removed. The, am I making up these uh, initiations or did our ancestors really understand this process in detail? The fact is, if you read our Shastras, one of the uh, Smriti texts, one of the Dharma Shastra texts, interestingly it clearly mentions if you are menstruating for th the ashaucha is only for the three days and if in case you are menstruating for you are bleeding for seven days or ten days then it means there must be some other medical problem in your body due to which you are having continuous bleeding for more than three to four days in that case ashaucha does not apply to you ashaucha ends after three days or at best four days it will not carry on forever and ever. Just because you bleed for 15 days due to some imbalance in your cycle does not mean ashaucha is also there. What does it mean? That after the three days, the excess bleeding is due to some other cause. It is not due to heightened condition of rajas. So, they had exact understanding of menstruation as removing this excess rajasic energy lasting for 3 to 4 days and it again brings back balance to the tridoshas. So, this is the purifying aspect of menstruation at the pranic level at the energy vital sheath. Lot of us do not really appreciate the vital sheath in today's uh, time because we have been fed the duality of body and mind, body and mind, body and mind. We recognize we have the physical body and there is something thinking behind we recognize so that there is mind. So, we accept at best the presence of duality, but because we cannot see it with naked eye, we do not appreciate the presence of the pranamaya kosha which is actually very, very important for our health at all levels, for our well-being at all levels. And all sadhana is basically a, an activity at a pranic and a mental level, pranamaya and manomaya kosha. Anyway, so coming back to the topic, the third kind of purification is the removal of adharmic actions actions at a physical level, actions at a speech level, actions at a mental level. See, in uh, we all know that in our tradition manasa vacha kaya, kaya manasa vacha. We speak about action at three different, physically that we do the kaya, manasa that we do in the mind, we think bad about somebody in the mind, we say that is also adharma, you should not think bad about others. We speak bad about somebody, we say that is also adharma. So, our understanding of so called morality or I, I better use the term ethics or dharma is not just limited to physical activity, it is also takes into its uh, ambit the speech as well as mental activity. In fact, there are clear verses in Manusmriti 
the much uh, bad mouthed text but something which i think maybe in 50 60 years once we get rid of all the asuric forces perhaps we will be able to appreciate better it has clear verses in its i think 11th chapter or 10th chapter it has a tf6 verses which says there are four kind of other mind that can be performed by body three or four kind it says adultery is one killing or murder is another and uh, stealing others um, you know uh, stealing uh, that which does not belong to one is another so all these are considered as adharma of the body similarly speaking falsehood uh, speaking bad about somebody else behind their back idle talk these are all you know adharma at the speech level and then thinking about somebody else spouse or thinking about somebody else wealth or thinking about hurting others is all adharma at the mental level so all these are considered adharma and our text says menstruation helps to free women of different kind of many some kinds of adharmas performed at these three level at the physical level we already saw that it removes one third brahmahatya that due to the non fertilization of yag at the speech level i already mentioned the kind of things it helps to improve the mental level it purifies impure thoughts how does it do because one of the practices that a uh, woman should practice during the three days is that she should practice it as a tapasya she should sit separately from the family not listen to uh, not talk too much stay in a happy mood self introspect so all these things purifies the mind and very interestingly our dharma shastra says vashishta dharma sutra i have quoted here that menstruation frees one from feelings of dishonor due to unfortunate incidents like rape sexual assault etc consider this today we see a lot of sexual assault lot of rape happening lot of victims they carry this deep anguish deep uh, sorrow i can't even imagine the deep pain throughout their lives but here is a text it is saying that women can uh, these are all just textual things how is it even practical i mean women are become, you know assaulted every other day so do you mean that they all become free just like that that is not the what the text is saying see it is providing a framework of understanding a framework which you need to put into practice with shraddha which you need to adopt in your life interiorize the message <coughs> only then it will act upon you it will make sense to you if you have the shraddha that okay i had this traumatic experience but i have this shraddha that this menstruation the, the coming up periods i will become free of the trauma it will make me free of the trauma then your mind will be tuned to that process 
See, everything is in the mind. The trauma is in the mind. Trauma is actually not in the body. The trauma is in the mind. A victim of assault has the trauma in the mind. So this is a purely a psychological thing. That I have, I heard that there are some, you know, for drug addicts and all, they have a certain uh, way of making them become de-addicted. Like whenever they want to feel like taking, I heard, I don't know how much true it is, there is some center where they beat them, beat the hell out of them. So that they are trained to expect beating when they have the desire and finally get rid, rid of that addiction. That these are all different mechanisms to train the mind to remove one kind of vasana and put into another kind of vasana. So that is what is happening here. So if you are placing yourself in this framework of understanding about menstruation, then it is possible for you to psychologically become free of the trauma by taking, by using the menstruation as a tool because as we will see further, the menstruation is not just bleeding. There are certain lifestyles, certain do's and don'ts. It's a whole entire package. It's an austere package. You put into yourself into that austerity mood, then the effect will happen on your mind. So these are the different things that our Shastras, our tradition understands as uh, perceives menstruation as a healing and a purifying process. It heals people at various level. It frees them of various kinds of impurities and adharmic actions, so on and so forth. Interestingly, there is a quote in Baudhayana Dharma Sutra and it says that women possess an unrivaled means of purification, they never become impure. For month to month, their temporary uncleanness removes their sins or papams. What does it mean? It means that women's entering temporary ashaucha does not make them impure or inferior or degrade them. Instead, it makes them ever pure. So our understanding is completely opposite to the narrative about Hinduism that is prevalent today. Menstruation purifies at physical, speech and mental levels. We have a verse saying that women are pure in all limbs. Soma, Gandharva, Agni purifies them, gives them melodious voice and so on and so forth. Interestingly and importantly, men do not have this facility. We need to perform lot of tapasya, there is sandhya vandana, there is sadhana, puja and japa, what not, that men need to do to even get rid of very tiny mini wrong things we do day in and day out. We tell a lie, we need to do sandhya vandana to actually get over it but women get over it by default when they have their menses. So what comes by special effort to men comes as part of natural process to women. Menstruation is thus a privilege to women 
privilege as being a self-purifying and a healing process. But of course, I would add a uh, caveat there. That it does not mean that uh, women can commit any crime and they say, okay, I'm having a periods and I've become free of this crime. You don't get a free pass. That is not what the Shastra says. It simply means that there are certain unintentionally committed, uncontrollable things that happen day in and day out and you can become free from them. That doesn't mean you, you murder your teacher, you murder your husband or murder somebody else and you say, I, I am committed nothing. It's not like that. So anyway, so as I said, menstruation is also a tapasya, austerity and a period of rest. Tapas means any form of austerity, hardship voluntarily undertaken to attain a goal. In the spiritual context, it refers to indriya nigraha, restrainment of the body, mind and the senses. Lot of vratas you are all aware of doing upvasa and doing that uh, fast, the, this restrainment, tapasya, all these things come under austerity. And menstruation is one austerity like that. As a, the, the paricharya or the lifestyle practices that the dharma shastras and the ayurvedic tests prescribe include one thing, one common thing is sexual abstinence. And that sexual abstinence is also for the tapasvi who is in a forest because there is a indriya nigraha. Similarly, it asks women to stay away from anointing herself, doing makeup, sleeping on bed and having other luxuries combing themselves, all those things. See, these are the things that women do day in, day in, day out. You avoid those things, you prevent yourself, you stop yourself, you restrain yourself by doing the, from doing these activities. So this leads to Indriya Nigraha, which is Tapasya. And rest is a must need. I already mentioned that Ayurveda lays very huge stress on this rest no cooking, no physical exertion through sports, household works. So this is all for the rest. Why rest? Because I'll come to the why part in Ayurvedic uh, thing. Because physical exertion in short is highly harmful to the women's body, highly harmful to the uh, physical, uh, the biological process. It imb causes imbalance in the doshas. So then the question arises, we saw the final thing was, why celebrate menstruation? As I said, menstruation is connected deeply to childbirth, fertility. The whole menstrual cycle is to facilitate women to become mother. The onset of menstruation is celebrated among different communities across India. As uh, Sai Swarupa was mentioning, it is kind of half marriage in many communities. I think especially in Tamil Nadu, it's still even today, they celebrate it in a very, very huge way. It has very much reduced in Karnataka, I think. They do it small uh, ritual. So menarche ritual, see menarche ritual is a very interesting aspect. Unfortunately, we have, you know, kind of in the last hundred years, I think the practice has reduced and it is reducing day by day. It has an importance of half marriage, but it also has a co 
corresponds to the upanayana of the boys the purification that brahmachari boys attain through sandhya vandana which is which is the sandhya vandana is due to upanayana without upanayana no sandhya vandana right so that purification kanyas attain through monthly menses so there is a clear uh, parallel further menarche ritual marks a transition of a girl from a kumari avastha to a kanya avastha just as upanayana marks transition from a kumara avastha to a brahmachari avastha and menstruation makes women eligible to enter grihastha ashrama and facilitates them to perform their three dharma including entering motherhood which are unique to them see one thing i'd like to clarify here see today we speak about child marriage but we let us uh, take it with a qualifiers that in indian culture in in the past even when the child marriage or early marriage i don't like the term child marriage it's too negative i like the term early marriage when it happened actual consummation of the marriage or the girl going to the husband's house happened only after she attained puberty mostly such marriages see there is we may we have to differentiate between classical india and post islamic india in the last 100 years there were indeed child marriages in the sense both bride and groom were married at age of 7 6 4 5 8 or something like that but in classical india from the texts like kama sutras and natya shastra we get a different picture and even dharma shastra see dharma shastra says 8 uh, years for brahmana girl because it it uh, it says the upanayana the vivaha is a upanayana equivalent for women so the dharma shastra point of view the age is for brahmana girl it is 8 years for kshatriya it will be uh, 10 and uh, for vaishya 12 or 14 or something like that but in reality in reality marriages happened well after puberty maybe at age of 13 14 or 15 we see in the text like kama sutra about gandharva vivaha about how to approach women even in dharma shastra itself gandharva vivaha is given a legitimate place and it also speaks about how uh, if a father of a parent fails to get their daughter married after age of 12 or uh, after having after she de- has her menarche she can wait for 3 years and then she can choose her own husband so this is gandharva vivaha in the sense any love marriage in today's time is the shastra bhadda because today men and women are ma- marrying women are marrying way after their pu- uh, puberty many many years after their menarche so they are actually shastra bhadda the point is we had a clear understanding of the biological process and menstruation or the menarche was considered as a very vital aspect of life very vital stage of life and we have various deities who are specifically or sometimes generally associated with menstruation 
take the example of uh, navaratri so nine nights we worship nine different forms of durga navadurgas the first five forms are specifically associated with five aspects of uh, women's life women's biological evolution shailaputri is a child brahmacharini is a kanya she is specifically associated with menstruation menarche chandraganta marriage kushmanda pregnancy skanda mata is motherhood the correlation is unmissable because the order of accounting for this the deities in the navadurga is the same pratamam shaila putri cha dvitiyam brahmacharini tritiyam chandraganteti kushmandeti chaturthakam panchamam skandamateti katyayini that it goes on so you cannot miss the correlation here and then there are different deities who are specifically associated for example in uh, one of the dharmashastra texts uh, dharma sindhu uh, when there is some dosha regarding ritukala and all it it uh, suggests worship of i forgot the name of the devi a form of gauri or something i think bhavani or gauri it it uh, mentions that as something to be done then we have festivals and temples like kamakya who is a yoni pita she is she is almost everybody has heard there is a, every year she enters menstruating state for 3 days and the ambubachi festival is celebrated then we have harachandi in odisha and the raja parva the festival itself is called as raja or menstruation wherein they celebrate the menstruation of uh, bhumi devi and harachandi and even in uh, karnataka among the tulu community they celebrate keddasa where they celebrate the menstruation of earth bhumi devi and we have uh, uh, temples from kamakya to uh, temple in keralas temples in kerala there where their presiding deity undergoes menstruation so we are very clear that menstruation is a sacred celebration it is something to be celebrated it is a positive healing process and there is nothing negative about it even the understanding of ashaucha is not negative it is merely a statement of ineligibility is merely a statement of the biological physiological and the pranic and mental state of a woman at that time we cannot understand the process of ashaucha without understanding the process of self purification and the final uh, uh, the section not final i think i'm almost over another 15 20 minutes ayurveda and i find this very important very relevant because we have been too much taken in by the allopathic uh, modern medicine that we have uh, beginning to you know sideline whatever medical knowledge we have inherited 
the codified the document and medical knowledge. One example is almost all people who are educated in modern education, all the women in, of our times, they feel having pain, cramps, etc. during their periods is a normal thing. That is something that is taken for granted. So you have a monthly period, then you have some pain, some cramp, some irritation. But do you know what Ayurveda defines menstruation, normal menstruation as? It defines normal menstruation as one which is not associated with pain or a burning sensation and neither very excessive nor very scanty in amount. Just see this. We don't even know that having pain is not a normal thing. Our lifestyle has become so bad, has become so disturbed that we feel that this is the new normal. This has become the new normal. In Ayurveda, just a brief uh, basics of Ayurveda, Ayurveda refer, uh, recognizes menstruation as a physi physiological process governed by the actions of doshas. Doshas are three number. You might have all heard about vata, pitta, kapha. These are three doshas. And health is defined as a person having these doshas in balance and illness is imbalance in these doshas. And the entire monthly cycle, menstrual cycle is divided into three phases. Ritukala dominated by kapha dosha. It is a preparation for ovulation. Ritu vyatita kala, the secretory phase where nutrients are secreted in anticipation of conception. Here pitta is predominant and rajasrava kala, the actual bleeding, the three to five days, which is dominated by vata dosha. So, Shushuta Samhita defines a disturbed arthavam. Arthavam is another name for menstruation. Disturbed arthavam or the abnormal menstruation, he says it is caused by disturbed vayu, that is disturbed vata or a disturbed pitta or a disturbed kapha or the blood, either severe, uh, severally or in combination of two or more doshas and this will hamper the ability of a woman to conceive. So, in short, the Ayurvedic texts are very clear that normal menstruation means without pain and all those things and abnormal menstruation is caused by the imbalance in the doshas, one or the many of the doshas. And this abnormality or the imbalance in doshas will have negative consequence on the health of the women and hamper the ability of the women to conceive children. So, what is the solution? Ayurveda prescripts a mode of life to be adopted by menstruating women during those three days. This is called as Rajaswara Paricharya, the lifestyle practices, the do's and don'ts for a menstruating woman to protect her health, to prevent any health defects that may arise. Charaka Samhita summarizes in a small way saying that at after the onset of menstruation, for the three days and nights, the woman should observe celibacy, should sleep on the ground, take food with the hands from an unbroken utensil and should not cleanse her body in any way. 
Pradyumna ji noted how women have received this knowledge from their parents and grandparents that they should not take a bath. They should sit separately, take a rest. But they did not know why. Why not take a bath? I mean, I think no, uh, we do not, we cannot even imagine not taking a bath a day. Especially in the, the, the kind of narrative today is built, menstruating women, they feel, no, no, I have to take a bath, so I'm feel, I feel so bad, you know, with all blood coming out and all. But our Ayurveda says, you should not take a bath for three days. It says, because it harms your health. How does it harm your health? By causing imbalance in the doshas. See, this is, I have taken this from a one of a paper, they have made this, uh, summarized the teachings in various Ayurvedic texts into do's and don'ts and uh, the results, the effects on the child if the don'ts are performed. The do's are to observe celibacy, sleep on a mattress, it says kusha mattress but even otherwise simple mattress will do, to eat very simple food made of ghee, rice, milk, barley and to eat it in a very less quantity. Eat simple food, easily digestible food, avoid junk food, avoid outside food, avoid spicy food and eat all of them in a very small quantity. And importantly to take food, to eat food directly from hands or clay utensils or leaves, banana leaves not from metal utensils because metals are conductor of energy, metals they have the effect on your own body. What are the don'ts? Not sleeping during the daytime because even normally that Ayurvedic and other texts says we should not sleep during daytime because it harms our health. For menstruating women it is even more important because her the the body is very susceptible, very sensitive during that time and the doshas become easily upset. Use of collyrium, various kind of makeup, the eye makeup and all those things should be avoided. Crying, weeping, excessive laughter, taking body massage, nail pairing, bathing, anointment must be avoided. Running must be avoided. Any physical exertion must be avoided. Talking too much must be avoided. Asking women to stay in a room was not to oppress them, but to make her, you know, staying together means we all talk, we all converse, we all communicate. A partial kind of segregation is one of the way to reduce this conversation. And what does these things cause? See, it says not to become exposed to wind, not to go outside exposed to wind, not to do fatigue work. And it has listed lot of things, abnormalities that may arise in the child if these don'ts are practiced every time. So, it's not that one time you do something and suddenly some bad thing happens. But you 
keep doing these unhealthy practices, then these unhealthy practices have a severe effect on your health and the health of the child which you will give birth in a long term basis. So all these aspects, the, law, the most of the practices that our ancestors have transmitted to our generation, be it partial segregation, be it sexual abstinence, be it eating very uh, healthy, very light food, avoiding meat, etc., junk food, etc., or the practice of not going to temples, not doing uh, uh, spiritual activity, they all have very strong basis in Ayurveda as well as in Dharma Shastras. So, the, the temple uh, restriction is an elephant in the room and I think that needs to be addressed also. So, what is any puja or anything we do, what is it? It is a spiritual process. How does this spiritual process work? What, how does it work? What does it mean that I do a puja? What does that happen? Any activity has an influence on your manomaya kosha, the mind, the pranamaya kosha, the panchapranas and the physical body. When you do a puja, the prana, the apanavayu moves upwards. Any puja, you do it or you go to a satinaran puja or you go to a temple, all these energetic kshetrams, these kind of adhyatmic energies, they cause the apanavayu to move upward or at least an attempt to move an upward. But what is happening during menstruation? The apanavayu is moving downward. So, you are disturbing the menstruation process, you are disturbing the flow of apana downwards and this disturbance will have serious health consequences on the women's body. That is the first aspect. The second aspect is our temple is not a church, it is not a museum, it is not a place of congregation, it is a energy kshetram, it is a shaktipita. So, during menstruating women during her menstruation, she is in heightened condition of rajas, the rajasic energy is going out. So, she enters a temple, the rajasic energy which is going out, it creates an imbalance in the energy of the temple that needs to be rectified later using shuddhi and other process. Here shuddhi process again is not a negative term, it is merely a reference to the process that brings back balance to the energy of the kshetra. This is all the play of energy, that is why I said today we do not give importance to the pranamaya kosha, the play of the panchapranas, the play of the energy, our vital energy body. So, the prohibition or the advice to menstruating women to not perform puja, homa, japa, havan or to go to temple uh, is simply this, that her body is, will not be, will be unable to take on the influence of the external adhyatmic energies, the influence of these puja and all 
go is contradictory to the process that is happening in her body. Second, menstruation itself is a tapasya as I noted. So when you are in a kind of, when you are in a state of tapasya, you do not go and do some, some else activity. If I say if a sadhu takes a vrata, that he will do a particular tapasya for so many days, he will not go and do something else during that time. He will concentrate on his tapasya. So this is not a question of discrimination, not a question of superstition. It is merely an understanding of the process, understanding of the how the body, the pranamaya, annamaya and manomaya kosha exists and works. The Hinduism and modernity. I spoke briefly about this at the beginning, how the current narrative is problematic. One of the roots, source of the current narrative is Christian theology, but the other source is modern scientism, the western scientific worldview, which has been again copy pasted into Indian context. Science per se is nothing wrong, but the way science is understood, the way the modern science is understood is deeply problematic. The modern narrative on menstruation is predominated by western cultural values rooted in a scientific worldview which is derooted from the sacred dimensions which is derooted from a holistic understanding like I spoke about the three uh, panchakoshas and three gunas and the, all those things. It reduces all non-physical aspects into a mere taboo. The problem with the modern understanding of science or modern approach to science or modern scientific worldview is that it is very anthropocentric and it is very body-centric, it is very materialistic. It does not understand non-material phenomenon. It reduces all cultural understandings prevalent in across the world of non-material phenomena. It calls them superstition and taboo. Thereby, it reduces the entire experience of menstruation into a merely negative notions, negative perceptions of pain, cramps, an unavoidable physiological process, an annoyance that must be overcome through drugs, pills, sanitary napkins, whatever. Consider this. What are the names of the two popular brands of sanitary napkins in India? One is uh, Stay Free and another is Whisper. Have you ever deliberated upon the names Stay Free? Why do these commercial companies want women to become free from menstruation? When menstruation is so much relevant, so much central to women, why do they want to make women free from that process? What are they speaking? What are they teaching? What is the hidden underlying subconscious message? The choice of the word is rooted in this worldview that menstruation is an irritation, menstruation is an annoyance, it is a physical process somehow 
we must overcome to be a advanced progressive citizen of 21st century see that is the hidden uh, underlying uh, perception that is being you know transmitted to young girls millions of young girls each day each year whatever the what about the other product whisper whisper means whispering means you know talking in a very low voice keeping something secret they say that hinduism has created a taboo that we do not want to speak about menstruation but the fact is it is not the hindus it is the modernity which has created this taboo and a narrative of shame by naming their product as whisper they are indirectly subconsciously giving this message that this is something which should not be discussed which should be discussed in shushish voice behind the backs so if school girls today hesitate to speak openly even among themselves the modern narrative has the modern commercials has a lot to play in it it is not a coincidence but you go to rural areas even today rural women speak openly when we have uh, festivals uh, on this topic when you celebrate ritukala and all those things then where is the question of shame where is the question of you know hiding so we must stop you know stop a uh, moment and reflect on the kind of narrative that modern education and modernity is imposing upon us take the example of sanitary napkins again because i i keep because that is the most visual medium in which people relate to menstruation today all these advertisements somehow the the image they give is just by wearing these pads women become they attain freedom they become free to you know uh, swim free to run win gold medals attend schools what i sometimes feel what are they smoking because the lifestyle that they are promoting is completely unhealthy as i noted the ayurveda clearly states any physical exertion is very harmful to the health of a woman so you're promoting a highly highly unhealthy narrative highly unhealthy practices and then you're saying that we are progressive we are asking for freedom of women from taboos and restrictions so in the name of freeing one from cultural taboos modern scientific education is promoting unscientific practices that are harmful to health and the obsession of, of with a particular scientific biological narrative of menstruation has alienated women from their own bodies and bodily experiences they have prevented women from discovering a positive meaning to the process as a part of their self discovery since all cultural knowledge all subjective experience have been reduced to 
It's merely a superstition and false belief. So, just compare how Hinduism posits menstruation as a celebratory process, as a purifying process, as a healing process versus modernity which makes menstruation, which reduces menstruation to some kind of irritation, some kind of annoyance which must be overcome through drugs, through various process. So, we need to think before, you know, being taken by the narrative that is built around us. We need to stop and think ki how far, what are the motivations of these narratives, what are the theological and philosophical basis of these narratives and whether these narratives are even in sync with our own cultural values, our own traditional values, our own understanding, very instinctive understanding of life. I believe even today except for a, a bunch of culturally deracinated group of people, most of us are instinctively and intuitively connected to this land, to this culture, to dharma and to the no Indian knowledge traditions. There is lot of cloud, there is lot of mud which is actually preventing uh, from us from to directly access this knowledge traditions, knowledge systems, knowledge values, but we intuitively get are connected to it nevertheless. So it is my hope that people begin questioning. They don't take everything science is not necessarily true. See, we have this uh, trend among our Hindus today. We say, ye vajyanik hai, hamara Hindu dharm bhot vajyanik hai, hamara Hindu dharm, uh, we, our, uh, you know, our uh, Hindu traditions are very scientific. I think we are become too obsessed with proving our traditions are scientific because the scientific term we are using, it has a very limited scope. See, because we understand it, in the way the modern science understands itself as being rooted in a materialism, as rooted being uh, rooted in an anthropocentrism, rooted in a body consciousness. These cannot explain or understand the nuances that Hindu philosophy or Hindu texts or Hindu traditions encompass. So we should stop trying to prove ourselves to be scientific. Like in one of the talk I gave in Mangalore Lit Fest, um, a lady, well-meaning lady, but uh, she was telling how the black um, uh, energy and black matter, our Shiva and Tandava represent black energy and black matter. I said, you are simply collaborating. Why do you have this craving to say that the Hindu philosophical concepts is scientific? Why can't you accept the fact of Shiva and Tandava for what they are without trying to speculate that they must refer to some black, uh, you know, black energy, black matter and what all those things. We don't need it. That is another kind of corruption or a distortion that is happening 
but the point is we need to discover our own knowledge systems our own understanding of life and connect with it because it is my firm understanding from experience from belief that our civilization is a superior civilization our understanding of life is a superior understanding of life and our knowledge system is a superior knowledge system so some of the practices that modern women can adopt i have taken this from last appendix from my book because this i find is the most relevant part i am not saying that whatever we practice in the past we have to practice in the present i am not arguing for going back into some golden age in the history but i am arguing for living in the present by living but living in such a way that we continue our past continue our civilization we become connected to that perennial civilizational knowledge system and we can do it as this slide is a good example i spoke about rajaswala paricharya i spoke about practices in the dharma shastras and ayurveda that uh, they suggest for menstruating women here i have summarized something that modern women can also imply uh, practice for example food no matter whether you are working in a corporate field or no matter you are a housewife no matter whatever work you are doing this is one thing all women can do during their monthly periods eating very light meals perhaps rice with ghee or milk or a curd rice or meat made of barley but in any case eating a vegetarian food even if you are non vegetarian avoiding junk food eating home cooked food and eating very small quantity enough to fill the stomach or maybe keep the stomach little bit empty and eating using fingers even though normally you may use the spoons and all those things but during those times you use your, your fingers at least avoid metal spoons and folks use say uh, mud spoons or something like that using clay utensils plates made of leaves avoid metal utensils these are some of the things which is practice uh, practical even today observing celibacy is another thing which is easily practi uh, practical can be practiced by anybody even today not sleeping during the day sleeping on a mat or a charpoy instead of your regular bed the self adorning part of course this may be difficult for those who go to office that not to take bath avoiding makeup brushing anointment use of uh, colorium body massage hair combing and all but those who work from home or who for homemakers they can easily practice this moreover even those who go to a job they can and i believe i strongly believe they should take a day or two leave during these times and practice this mental stress keeping mind free of stress mental calm focusing on auspicious and joyful things avoiding laughter too much too much at least try to understand before thinking of rebelling so most of the things that i have listed here in the this is in the appendix of my book 
this is easily practicable if not all of them some of them one month you do three of them next month you do one of them the third month you do ten of them but the the point is doing them to some extent is possible is practical and it is very much useful it it create is for the benefit of the women the all these practices the ayurvedic tales and dharma shastras all them the sole criteria the sole intention is to protect the health of women to enhance the lifestyle of women so the ultimate beneficiary will be women itself so uh, with this i end my presentation and i thank you all for patiently listening to it so the, the books are available and anybody interested uh, can access them thank you